I want to start things off this morning with a really deep, reflective question. How much money would you be willing to pay for a banana? Ooh, that's harsh. Zero. Wow. How much would you be willing to pay for a banana? Bananas are one of those items in the produce aisle that I really appreciate because they never really shoot up in price. You know, it's not even that I like them all that much, but they're dependable. You know, they're reliable. They never really uh, skyrocket up. Cauliflower, like that's a, that's a vegetable that you can't trust. You know what I'm saying? That stuff's like liable to shoot up to $8 a head, but bananas, they're faithful. Like they're an affordable fruit. But a few years ago, there was a banana in Miami, Florida, that became an exception to that rule. Maybe some of you have heard about this. Uh, what happened was a famous artist went into a museum and he duct taped a banana to the wall and he declared it to be a piece of art. He called his masterpiece the comedian because, you know, clowns slip on bananas. And believe it or not, three editions of this piece ended up selling. Two of them sold for, are you ready? $120,000. And the third one went for $150,000. I kid you not, this is real, this is real life. Now besides the fact that the piece would have cost about 75 cents and 30 seconds for the artist to put together, any rational person would raise questions about the wisdom of investing in a piece of artwork that was inevitably going to decompose within a couple of weeks. But the artist advised people, the people who purchased his masterpiece, that they were free to replace the banana if they wanted to when that did happen, and it would still be called a legitimate piece of his artwork. So needless to say, this whole ordeal got quite a bit of attention in the media. And the outrageousness of the whole thing was actually the entire point. The artist was raising questions about how we assign value to things. Because this fancy art gallery was willing to put up a banana on the wall with a piece of duct tape and declare it art, and say that it had value, three people were willing to pay over $100,000 for uh, the banana, <laughs> knowing that within a matter of days, they would become brown and mushy and swarms of fruit flies would start to surround it. Right? The whole thing was just absurd. And you and I, like we're rational people, right? Sure, none of us would be willing to drop huge amounts of money on something that would depreciate in value the moment that we drove it off the lot. <laughs> or that would decompose as soon as we carried it out of the art gallery. But it does raise questions about what it is that we value. About what we're willing to give our lives, our time, our attention, our resources, and our hearts to. And about whether those things are really worthy of the value that we assign to them, whether they deserve to take up the space that they do in our lives. 
we've been working through a series on the kingdom of God. And we've been looking at the ways that the kingdom of God that Jesus introduced was so much different than what people were expecting it to look like. Because when Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God wasn't actually something that was new. It wasn't a new idea, right? The Jewish people had been waiting for this. They were waiting for a king, for a Messiah to to show up and to fulfill the promises that God had made to them through, through the prophets. And they had some really clear ideas about what they expected that to look like, none of which really lined up with how things were taking shape in Jesus' ministry. All right, we've talked about this. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and be a great warrior, who would lead them in defeating their enemies. They were expecting somebody who was going to be honored and respected in their society. They were expecting somebody with wealth and power and status and all of those things that make somebody great in the eyes of the world. And then Jesus arrived on the scene and he just didn't fit the mold. And it became really obvious really quickly that when Jesus said that the kingdom of God had arrived in him, that he was talking about something that was very different than anybody had been expecting. And so people had to make a decision. They had to make a decision about whether they were going to let Jesus redefine the way that they understood the kingdom of God or whether they were going to reject him and his teaching altogether. And throughout the Gospels, we actually see people responding to Jesus in both of these ways. So in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus tells some parables to help people wrap their heads around what was going on to help them understand what God was doing in the world so that they could start to see things through a new lens. And we've looked at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right, where Jesus explained that until he comes again, that good and evil are gonna coexist in the world, but he wants his followers to continue on the path that he'd called them to, just trusting that God would take care of evil right, in his time. And we looked at the parable of the mustard seed, And the yeast where Jesus compared the kingdom to these things that start out small, but that spread and grow and end up having an impact that's bigger than anyone could have imagined. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple of parables where Jesus talks about the value of the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, you can open up with me to Matthew 13. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 44 to 46. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. We'll start with verse 44. So Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything that he owned to get enough money to buy the field. So the scene that's being envisioned here is of a peasant who would have been working in the field of a landowner, And as he's just going about his business, doing his job, he stumbles across some some treasure, right? Now, that's what you call, like, a good day at work. Am I right? That's a good day at work. And so he goes out, he he covers the, the treasure back up, and then he goes out and he sells everything he has, and he comes back and buys the field so that he can rightfully claim the treasure as his own. Now, finding buried treasure, it really isn't something that we hear about too often 
in our culture, right? People have a lot of money. They don't typically bury it, right? They put it in a bank or in like investments or something. I don't know. What do people do when they have a lot of money? They put it in banks and things like that. But in Jesus' time, when people had valuables, when they had money, or sometimes it would actually be uh, clothing, fabrics, and things like that, um, they would actually bury it in the ground because there weren't any banks. And if they kept it in their homes, there was always a risk that it, it would be stolen. And so there were uh, sayings that would go around that the only safe repository for any valuables was actually in the dirt. And that's what people would do. They would bury their valuables. And if somebody went away on a journey and they didn't end up coming home, or if somebody went off to war, for example, to fight in a battle, and they died, then the treasure would be left there, waiting to be claimed by the first person who came across it. And so stumbling across a buried treasure was actually kind of the dream. And stories would circulate amongst the poor about people finding lost treasures and becoming really wealthy all of a sudden. And usually in these stories, the focus was on the lavish lifestyles that people would get to enjoy after they discovered the treasure. But when Jesus shared the story, his focus is different, isn't it? Jesus told the story in a way that emphasized the value of the treasure. Getting a hold of the treasure was worth sacrificing everything else for. All right, verse 45, let's have a look. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. So in this parable, we hear about a merchant who had spent his life hunting for valuable, valuable pearls. This was a culture where pearls were really a big deal. They had a lot of value. There were reports of pearls having the equivalent value to tens of millions of dollars in our currency today. And finally, the merchant finds the perfect pearl. And so he sells everything he has in order to buy it. Now, this is no, by no means a rational decision in terms of risk management, right? By selling everything else he had and putting everything into this one pearl, he was making himself really vulnerable to, to, uh, to losing it, could have been stolen, but the merchant doesn't care, right? He's so swept up with excitement about this one pearl that he's willing to give up everything he has in order to get his hands on it. So in the first story, Jesus talks about a man who has very little in terms of resources. In the second story, we hear about a person who has a lot, who's very wealthy. In the first parable, he talks about a man who stumbles upon buried treasure by accident. In the second parable, he talks about somebody who's kind of been seeking out this precious pearl for his entire life, day in and day out. But the main theme in both of these parables is this. The kingdom of God has a hiddenness to it. It didn't show up with a bang like, we're pe like people were expecting that it would. But nonetheless, it's worth giving up everything for. It's more valuable, more worthy of our hearts and our resources than anything else in this world. And the question that this would have caused people to reflect on was this. 
what is it that you really value? What do you long for? What do you really want more than anything else? For generations, the Jewish people had been longing for the Messiah to come, to bring them freedom. That was what they wanted. That's what they had their hearts set on. And what they thought that would look like was freedom from the Romans and prosperity and peace for their nation. But Jesus knew better than they did what would bring them true fulfillment. And that fulfillment could only be found in him. Right? Jesus was there to offer them freedom. But it was a freedom that was deeper than they could have imagined. He was there to offer them freedom from their sin and freedom to live the kind of life that God had designed them to live, regardless of who was in political power. Jesus was there to bring them peace, but it wasn't the temporary, superficial peace that might come from defeating their enemies. He was there to offer them a deep peace, peace that came from being reconciled to God and reconciled to others. Jesus was there to bring them riches that could never be taken from them. He was there to bring them real and eternal life. The kingdom of God was different than what people were expecting, but it was so much better. Like a treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl of great value, it was worth giving up everything else in order to get. And just as these parables would have prompted Jesus' listeners to start thinking through questions about what they value, I think they invite us to do the same thing today. So take a minute to think about that right now. What do you want? What do you want more than anything else? What do you desire? What do you value? James K.A. Smith is an author and a professor, and he says that the first last and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship is this. What do you want? Jesus was always throwing this question out to people in one way, shape, or form. What do you want is such an important question because our desires drive our behavior and our actions. More than anything we believe, more than anything we know to be true, just cognitively, Our identity is shaped by the things that we want, the things that we love, the things that we give value to. So what is it that you really want? Do you ever stop to think about that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you know the right answer. That you know the right answer to the question, right? We all know that we should desire Jesus above everything else. We know that we're called to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. But if you were to give yourself permission to just be really honest with God and with yourself about that question, do you really? What does the way you spend your time and your money and your attention say about what you value most in this world? If we're honest, most of us struggle to give God the devotion that we know he deserves, right? Often our loves are in competition with one another. And this is true in our faith, but it's also true 
in other areas of our lives. You know, for example, I love the way I feel when I'm staying active and when I'm eating like a high-protein, vegetable-rich diet, but I also love ice cream, especially like bubble, bubble gum and cookie dough. Oh, so good. And I love watching Netflix, right, and relaxing. And so often I find myself in this place of tension where my desires are in competition with one another, and maybe you can relate. And even though we might love God, even though we might know that he's worthy to be loved above everything else, our hearts often gravitate towards these things that pull us in other directions. Things like money and pleasure and power and popularity. But the thing that I find most intriguing about these parables is that the characters don't give up everything they have out of obligation. Sometimes we come to passages like this and we try to guilt ourselves into making God a greater priority in our lives. But the message of the parable is completely different than that. Right? These men don't give up their stuff because they feel obligated to. Jesus goes out of his way to tell us that it's in joy It's in joy that this man sells everything he has in order to get the treasure that he's found because he recognizes that it's so much better, so much more valuable than anything he could try to hold on to. And so the question that this raises for us is this. If we don't feel that same draw towards God's kingdom, if we aren't seeing it as a treasure that's worth joyfully sacrificing everything else for, what are we missing? What aren't we seeing? What's getting in the way of our ability to see the kingdom of God for the treasure that Jesus says that it is? And this can work in, in two directions. There are things that push us away from God, And there are things that draw us towards these other desires that can become idols in our lives. So first, let's look at the things that push us away. What are those things that, if we're really honest, cause us to question whether God's kingdom is the treasure that Jesus says that it is? Each one of us comes to faith with baggage, We all have misconceptions about God that that we've picked up along the way, whether that's through bad experiences that we've had in the church or messages that we've picked up about Christianity from our culture. And when we've only really experienced expressions of Christianity that are driven by shame and fear and judgment, it pushes us away from a life of intimacy with Jesus when we believe that Christianity is all really just a bunch of rules that are designed to keep us away from everything that's fun, it's hard to see the kingdom of God as a treasure that's worthy of giving everything we've got in order to get our hands on. St. Ignatius once said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until we can trust that God is good, that what God wants for us is really what's actually best for us, we'll always be trying to find fulfillment in other places. 
And then there are those, those things that draw our hearts towards other desires and kind of dress them up to be more valuable than God's kingdom. Our world is constantly sending us messages about what we should want, about what we should be giving value to. And because it's the water that we're swimming in, we often don't even really realize the ways that our hearts are being shaped by that. For example, we all know cognitively that stuff won't make us happy, right? If I was to ask any of you, hey, do you think that stuff will make you happy? If you had a bunch of really cool belongings, would you be a happy person? No one would say yes, right? We all know that that's not true. But that doesn't tend to slow us down on Amazon. Because in our consumeristic culture, we're constantly bombarded with advertisements and social media posts and conversations with people that kind of train our hearts to believe that it will, that stuff will make us happy. And so we get tricked into chasing after fulfillment where our culture tells us that we'll find it in things like stuff and pleasure and status, right, and comfort. And we're constantly disappointed to find that nothing really satisfies the hunger inside of us like we thought that it would, at least not for very long. David Foster Wallace uh, was an author and a professor, and even though he wasn't a Christian, this is really interesting, he spoke about the reality that every human being worships something. We don't get to choose whether or not we're going to worship. We can only choose what or who we worship. And so often, we end up worshiping things that harm us. Or as uh, David Foster Wallace said in his words, that end up eating us alive. He said this, If you worship money and things, if there where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He's on to something, isn't he? As human beings, we're so prone to giving our hearts to things that at best fail to satisfy us and at worst wreak havoc in our lives. C.S. Lewis said it this way, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Life in the kingdom of God is the life that we were created for. It's a life that's defined by love, by God's perfect, unconditional love that the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3 is so great that we'll never even be able to fully understand it. It's a life that's defined by freedom, from freedom from the sin that weighs us down and keeps us in bondage. It's a life of freedom to live fully and be who God calls us and designed us to be. It's a life that's defined by peace, 
by the unshakable peace that comes with knowing that we've been forgiven and that our lives are in the hands of the one who made the universe. It's a life that's defined by hope, by a stubborn hope that can endure through the most difficult circumstances because we know how the story ends, because we know that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 28. It's a life that's defined by joy, by the joy that comes from experiencing God's grace and from knowing deep in our bones that we are his children. The life that Jesus invites us into, life in the kingdom of God, is the life that we were created for. And so it's the only place that will find true fulfillment, and it's the only thing that's worth really giving our hearts to. Scripture is filled with all kinds of examples of people who were so overwhelmed by God's love and the goodness of the gospel that they were willing to surrender everything for it. This is what we see in Mary, who before Jesus was crucified, took a jar of perfume that was worth an entire year's wages and poured it out over Jesus' feet to anoint him. This extravagant act of love. This is what we see in Paul, right? Who had everything going for him as a Pharisee who was respected in his religious community for his zeal and for his righteousness and for his level of education, but then who had an encounter with Christ and gave all of it up to spread the gospel to people who'd never heard it. And ended up saying in Philippians, he says, you know, I consider that all garbage, right? It's garbage in light of this reality of knowing Christ. We see this in the early church when people sold their possessions to make sure that everyone's needs were taken care of. We see it in the apostles who so often ended up giving up their lives as martyrs for the gospel. Again and again in the New Testament, we hear about people who experience Christ's love and are so impacted by it that they're willing to surrender their lives to him. And so what do we do if we find ourselves in a place where we don't desire Jesus and his kingdom above everything else like we might want to or like we, we know that we should? There's a, a verse in 1 John that is it's really short, but it's also very profound. 1 John 4 verse 19 says this. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We might be willing to uh, will our, sorry, we might be able to will ourselves into obeying God's commandments. Some of the time, at least, right? A lot of the time. We might be able to go through the motions of going to church and reading our Bibles and doing the things that we know we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus. But God isn't just looking for compliance, right? He wants our hearts. And our love for God only really grows as we get to know him and experience his love. When I was in university, I I took a course called The Theology of Marriage. And my professor was this adorable old man named uh, Dr. Snyder, who just loved to talk about love. And in my memory, he was always wearing a bow tie, but I can't confirm whether that's real or not. Um, I I remember very little from the class, but I'll never forget this. One day, Dr. Snyder went up to the front of the class and he said, 
I'm going to tell you the secret to staying in love. You can tell why I perked up, right? I mean, if, if he's got it, that sounds important. I'm going to tell you the secret to staying in love. If you want to stay in love with somebody, you need to make sure that you never stop learning about them. Never stop being curious about who they are and what they love and the experiences that they've had. He said, you, there's always more to learn about somebody. If you want to stay in love with somebody, make sure that you never stop getting to know them. And what's interesting is that since then, brain research has been done that's actually demonstrated that he's right. If you fall in love with somebody, there are regions of your brain that will kind of like light up and get really active right away. The area is connected with things like risk and affection. But the part of your brain that's connected to that deeper attachment-based love is slowly activated over time as we get to know somebody. And so my question for you this morning is this. How have you been getting to know God lately? How have you been opening yourself up, both in terms of your schedule and your heart, to experiencing the love of God? There's a story about a professor who, there's a lot of professors we're talking about today. Huh? It's a story about a professor who wanted to teach his students about prioritizing what really matters. And maybe some of you have heard this. Um, and so to do that, he took a glass jar and he filled it with a bunch of rocks. And he filled it all the way up to the top and then he, he asked his students if the jar was full. So the students looked at the, the, the jar and they said, yeah, it's full, right? And then he took some smaller pebbles and he put those into the jar and he shook it around so that they would kind of settle into the space between the bigger rocks. And the students, he asked the students if the jar was full and he held up held it up, and they looked at it, and they said, yeah, now it's full, right? Now it's full. And then he took some sand, and he put the sand into the jar, and he shook it around so that it settled in in between uh, the pebbles, and then he held it up, and he asked the students if the jar was full. And finally, they agreed that now the jar really was as full as it could possibly get. And then the professor went on to explain that the rocks represent those things in our lives that matter the most. And the pebbles represent the things that are a little less important. And the sand represents the things that can take up a lot of our time, but that don't really matter all that much. And if he had have started it with the sand and then put in the pebbles, there's no way that the big rocks would have fit, right? And just like if we don't put in uh, the things that matter most into our lives, if we don't prioritize them, we tend to, to forget about them, right? They tend to fall between the cracks. But when we're clear about what really matters, when we give that priority in our lives, everything else tends to fit in around it, at least the important stuff. And we're just about to turn the corner into a new fall season, which means that we're all thinking about, or at least soon, for those of you who are maybe suspend acknowledging fall, like me, as long as you can, uh, we're all thinking about what our schedules are going to look like when we kind of flip out of summer mode and get back into our normal routines. And so now is the perfect opportunity to think about what those big rocks are in our lives, about what matters most to us. And this morning, I want to encourage you to think about what it would look like 
to make your relationship with Christ the biggest rock that you've got. Maybe that means spending more time in scripture and in prayer, or maybe it just means taking a few minutes outside every day to, to look at God's beauty and creation and to worship him. Maybe it means working less or deleting some apps on your phone so that you're not as distracted all the time. Maybe it means taking a few minutes at the end of each day just for gratitude, to reflect back and to notice how God was moving in your day and to give him thanks. It can mean a million different things for different people, but what would it look like for you to make your relationship with Christ the biggest rock you've got and to let the rest of your life kind of take shape around that with him at the center? Not out of obligation, not because you should, not because you feel guilty or because you need to earn God's love, but simply because you were made to live in light of God's kingdom. And you have a God who absolutely adores you and who wants you to experience the fullness of life that he has for you. A life that's filled with love and peace and hope and joy. We love because he first loved us. I'm going to close this morning uh, with Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 12, and I'm going to read it from the message. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a longer passage, but it's beautiful, and I just want to encourage you to just really pay attention as I read it, to let your hearts focus in on the reality of what Paul is saying here. Long before God laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we are a free people free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are, and what we're living for. It's in Christ we find out who we are and what we're living for. We can joyfully surrender our lives to Jesus because he sacrificed his life for us. And it's only in him that we can experience the hope and wholeness and freedom of his kingdom.